all religions basically the same? Have you ever had somebody ask you that question? Or, or maybe somebody who stated that as a basic fact, ah, religions, are, they're all the same. It's a very common perception these days. But I want to suggest to you today that while all religions may have some degree of overlap, nevertheless Christianity is on a page all of its own. Because once you look past the generic human yearnings that religions tend to speak into, like you know peace and joy and love and one day heaven, Christianity then finds itself in disagreement with every religion as to how those things resolve for us. In fact, the Bible teaches exactly that in uh, scriptures like this one that we just read this morning in Colossians chapter 2. And while we could have reflected today on how unique Christianity is from all kinds of angles and any number of texts, it's probably easiest and clearest to do it on uh, this concept. It's captured so well and so clearly in this text that we just read. And here's what it comes down to. Christianity is unique because of Christ. Christianity is unique because of Christ. And verse 8 is pretty blunt about it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's a clear warning against every other way of seeing the world, but this way that we've been shown in Christ. Everything else out there is just philosophy, empty deceit. Everything else is just waiting to take us captive, to enslave us. So we must follow and live our lives according to Christ, because only in Christ, therefore, can we be free. The Bible explicitly rejects the popular idea that religions are all the same, purely and simply because of Christ. And that sounds awfully arrogant and dismissive, don't you think, in, in our sensitive modern culture, uh, to say that this, this one person, Christ, makes such a difference as that between this faith that can set us free and every other worldview that can only, by comparison, put us in chains. But then again, consider who we're talking about in this person of Christ that the Bible claims. This is the reason why it's not arrogant or dismissive to give us such a blunt warning as that in verse 8, away from every other way of thinking. It's in verse 9. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. By deity, the text means God. And so in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of God dwells. In other words, when we consider Christ, we consider God himself. Christianity is unique because Christianity claims to have God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. No other religious thought has that uh, and not anything even like that. And surely if religion is supposed to be about anything, it's supposed to be about us knowing God. And yet only in Christianity do we see anything even remotely like this. God made himself known to us in the tangible and visible flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity 
dwells. And so flowing on from that, in another very unique way, the Christian believer has a fundamental certainty undergirding and undergirding their faith because in Christ they are joined to God. And you have been filled in him, verse 10. Filled in him, that is, made utterly complete, satisfied in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The one whom the Christian follows and trusts in is the one who has authority over everything. And what that then translates to is the contentment for us who believe in Christ, of knowing that nothing will be lacking. In our eternal needs and hopes, nothing will be lacking. We will certainly be secure and saved and satisfied because the one who saved us and and even showed us that he saved us at that visible cross is the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells and who who has got authority over every authority. Rejoice in your Saviour, Christians. You are filled in him. Nothing will be amiss. And you might not desire to be circumcised, verse 11, at least in the physical sense of that word. Or I don't know, maybe you do. But at any rate, that's not what verse 11 is speaking about. It's speaking of a kind of circumcision that doesn't require human hands, it says. That is a spiritual reality rather than that physical symbol. And the spiritual reality behind circumcision is simply a marking, a marking, being spiritually marked as belonging to God. That's what circumcision signifies, being marked as one who sits under the loving covenant of God's grace. And in case you're not noticing all the in him caveats all through this text, there's another important one in verse 11, in him, that is, in Christ You have received that spiritual mark. You belong to God and his covenant love forever sits over you. So to the next verse isn't talking about the physical symbol of baptism, but the spiritual truth underneath it. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Both the Old Covenant symbol of circumcision and the New Covenant symbol of baptism are yours if you are in Christ. Not only are you marked, verse 11, but you are recreated, verse 12. That's what's at the heart of this spiritual baptism we've received. Not just simply a washing away of our sins, but because of that, now learning that in God's eyes, as far as God is concerned with us, our old sinful self is dead and buried. And we've been raised into a new life by the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. We are recreated as far as God is concerned with us. While you and I, of course, still sit here and wait for the fulfillment of that, God has already assigned it to us in Christ. That is how God sees us and who he says that we are right now. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, because our every hope and need is filled. We are marked as God's people. We 
are recreated in the new life that he has given to us all because we are in Christ. That is to say, we trust in Christ. And therefore, all these things are ours even now. That is the word of God for all of you who trust in Christ. Nobody else in this world, outside this Christian gospel, is living their life in that kind of truth. Nobody else has these promises and seals of God over their life. They're following some other kind of philosophy. Verse 8. Taken in by some empty deceit, according to these words. Only in Christ, verse 8, are these things to be found. And so other people are living an entirely different life to those like you and I who who have and know these promises of God. They don't have these things, and so they must either be, I don't know, well, maybe they, be, they, they give up on God, would be option number one, or, or, or otherwise just hope somehow that they will find God and find his favor at the end of all things. But in Christ, we have all that now. We have what the rest of the world still yearns for, but can only pursue in blind uncertainty. It's ours, and the mechanism that gave all this to us is laid out in verse 13. This is why these things are already ours in Christ and not anybody else's. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, to the cross. No other worldview has anything like this. They may well hope for forgiveness when they stand before God at the end, but in Christ we know that we already have it because we know that he has paid for our sin. We were dead in sin, it says here. We were without hope. We were strangers to God like the rest of the world, but he made us alive in Christ. And so we we know that we sit now under his forgiveness and blessing. This, in verse 13 and 14, this is, this is what it means to be redeemed by God. All of our sin, that's what trespasses means there, all our sin has been taken care of by God. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross in Christ. And so you and I are now free in Christ and at peace with God. And so then every other religious idea, every system of thought out there, every goodwill message, every piece of advice or, or maybe pressure that the world might put to you has effectively been reduced to nothing by God who has made all those other things out there redundant in Christ. What can they possibly offer to us compared to what we have already received? And again I say, the Christian gospel is on a page all of its own. The gospel of what only comes to you in Christ is vital. It's vital for you to hold on to. 
It's not as if we ever graduate from Christ, move on from this phrase here of being in Christ. No, we continue in him all our life living out this beautiful truth. That's verse 6 there. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It's in Christ that we now live out the freedom and the assurance that he gives us. We know that God already sees us as the people we're still waiting and hoping that he will change us to be. We already are, in his view, his precious new creation. We already are marked out as his. We're redeemed and forgiven of all our sin. Right now, that's how we stand. And, and, and we are filled with everything that we will ever need for eternal life in Christ. And we can be certain of all that because it is God who revealed it all to us in the flesh and blood. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. And so this uh, redemption payment too that the gospel speaks of here, this record of debt being nailed to the cross, has been nailed to uh, and paid for by no less than him, God, full deity in Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. and Think about the assurance that this gospel gives you and the freedom it now lets you live in, knowing that it is God who has done all this, and it is God who has declared all this over you. You don't need to take my word for this. This is what God himself has done and declared for you in Jesus Christ. It is yours. This has big implications, not just at the individual level in our hearts, but for how we do church together as his people. And in a nutshell... We're going to do church together in Christ. Because we only are a church in Christ. And so we will not be and, and we cannot be just a generic church speaking vaguely about things like God or life or peace or heaven. We are a Christian church. Everything we do is anchored in Jesus Christ. We even declare that this is his church. We are in him in the language of this passage. And praise God, because the world doesn't really need more generic churches speaking on anything and everything, but with no real substance to it, no real depth, no real bedrock under it as to, as to who we are or whose we are or where we're going. No, no, the world needs Christian churches, churches that are in Christ, because it can only be in Christ that we, any of us have any hope of heaven or all those things that come with it, and yet much more that we can be sure of this hope because we are redeemed and forgiven. We are marked. We are recreated. We are filled. And all these other things beyond this passage in Christ, in whom full deity dwells. And so we must be a thoroughly Christian church. In all things we proclaim Jesus Christ. And yet the world will seek to lead us astray from that, verse 8, and take us captive into their emptiness. And hence the warning in this passage there. And so we must reckon with that warning. Obviously, yes, okay, we must remain in Christ, but 
How can we do that? How, how practically do we go about that as a church? How do we see to it, as the instruction puts it there, that we don't get taken captive? It occurs to me that when it comes to other religions that might lead us astray, the warning here is probably more important at the, the individual level. Other religions aren't going to walk into our church here on a Sunday and offer to lead us all astray wholesale. But they will approach individual believers in our church, say at the front door or at the shopping centre. And we need to be on our guard, yes, for ourselves, of course, but also for our brothers and sisters around us in church. This is where good Christian community comes uh, into play and becomes so important. Things like small groups through the weeks and, and one-to-one time where we can share life together as believers and, and watch out for each other. You see, I think we should actually read the warning in verse 8 from that kind of communal perspective since the Greek here actually uses plural pronouns and verbs through here. So perhaps we might reflect on this, this warning uh, in this kind of way. See to it that no one takes your brother or sister captive by philosophy and empty deceit. We need to be living out our faith together so that we can be well placed as a church family to meet this challenge. So think about some of the little ways that you might be able to help keep someone in Christ. And I think we also have to broaden our scope here on this warning and consider informal worldviews, not just formal religions, but informal cultural kind of sentiment. And and perhaps this is a more dangerous uh, uh, threat to our church because while formal religions are mostly, you know, out there doing their own thing, informal cultural kind of worldview does find its way right into the church and, and will threaten to lead the whole church astray from within. I'll give you an example. Over the past 20 years, studies have increasingly been showing that the prevailing cultural mindset in the West doesn't recognize the actual distinctives of any religion. And so it finds a a superficial, shallow kind of home in in all of them. Uh, Sociologists call this way of thinking moralistic, therapeutic Deism. It's moralistic because this cultural mindset thinks that, you know, we should be good. Of course we should be good and we should be nice to one another. And people who are good and nice to one another go to heaven. It's therapeutic because, you know, it makes people feel happy and good about themselves when they do good things and live nice lives. And surely being happy and feeling good about ourselves is the main goal in life. And deistic because, well, they think God is you know, way out there somewhere. He's distant. He's only half interested in us at best. And you know what? He's not really needed anyway. Unless, of course, something goes wrong with our pursuit of happiness or feeling good or our doing good and being nice kind of lifestyle, in which case we can call on God because he is there somewhere. We can call on him, you know, like a a genie in the bottle to come and help solve our happy, happy, do-good problems. And so in this cultural mindset of moralistic, therapeutic deism, Jesus, well, who's Jesus? Well, Jesus just becomes a nice example to model our life on. 
someone who showed us the way. And church becomes just a helpful, life-affirming place to meet up with friends. And there's little else. No mention of things like sin or, or any thought about repentance. No mention or thought of Christ bearing the wrath of God against our sin on that cross. No mention of the the absolute holiness that heaven requires or the fellowship with God that it's framed upon. That popular way of thinking is on a completely different page to the actual Christian gospel in these scriptures. And so the church's role is not to be led into that way of thinking, but rather to gently lead those kind of thinkers to the gospel truth. The gospel declares that God is neither distant nor unnecessary. He cares for us, and deeply so. So much so that he revealed himself to us, verse 9, in Jesus Christ. And he died to pay for our sins, verse 14. That's not simply therapeutic in terms of solving our little happiness problems. It's, it's altogether recreating, verse 10, 11, 12. Our lives are made new by the powerful work of God. And not because we did X amount of good or were especially nice to one another. On the contrary, verse 13, God did this because we were sinful. Christ died for sinners. And the Christian gospel is the power of God to save and transform sinners. And yet churches can easily be led down this cultural path of gathering around a false and watery kind of message of of how to pursue uh, feel-good happiness in one's self rather than creating vital relationship with God. The gospel is of eternal consequence, and yet the church is letting people be taken captive by shallow philosophies about this life. You see, this is what it means to be in Christ all through this passage. And it's a matter of life and death, verse 13. We are dead in our sin. But God makes us alive by this. Christ was nailed to the cross for our sin. That is where our trust is. That is where our hope is. That is what it is to be in Christ. To trust in what God did for us at that cross. And all these other blessings mentioned here flow from that. To be a penitent sinner who trusts in Christ is to have everything that's of any consequence. And to not be is to have nothing. That's how stark the difference is here in this text. As a first measure of response to the warning here, I want you to think over this passage through the week for your own life. Think about this passage and your own life. I want you to absolutely swim 
in these words and, and soak in the beauty of all these things that God has declared over those who have repented of their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Spend this week thinking over all these different concepts shown to you here in this, in this text, that, that in Christ you are filled, marked, recreated, forgiven, redeemed. And, and, and check your heart that these are the kind of things that you desire. That these are the kind of things that you come to Christ for because these are the kind of things he gives. And a second thing that we might do then is catch up with one or two others in the church. Have a cuppa or something. Watch out for your brother or sister too, this passage is saying. Watch out that they are still in Christ and that they are still desiring these things. Make sure it's the gospel that their hope is in and that they haven't been distracted from that. Because the main goal of life isn't actually happiness or feeling good about ourselves or or anything quite so shallow as that. It's to know God and to enjoy him forever. And in Christ, we can. Because God has cancelled our debt of sin that should exclude us from his presence. And he has taken it and nailed it to the cross of Christ. And all the philosophy in the world has got nothing on that. And so, as a third measure of response to this text, I suggest we make like verse 7 and abound in thanksgiving. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these scriptures we're looking at today and for what they tell us. We thank you for what you have done for us in Christ, that you have taken our record of sin and put it aside, nailing it to the cross of Christ. Father, we, we just pray that you would watch over us in that truth now and help us to be strong and to watch over each other in love. Keep us all safe as a church in your gospel because this gospel is the only thing that can take us into everlasting life with you. This is what we desire, Father, and so this is what we pray. Please do this for us and keep us strong in your gospel. In Christ. Amen.